you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. So if you find Matthew, take a left, and you're there. We've been talking over the last few weeks now about simply Christmas, about having a simple Christmas, not getting caught up in all of the stuff. And uh, we talked two weeks ago about reflecting, to simply reflect during this season, and that we ought to take some time to think about what the Lord has done and to reflect on it. And I gave you kind of an assignment to do that during the week. Um, today, or last week, we talked about simply giving and gave you a, a sheet that had lots of information about different places that you could give to and encourage you as a family to find a way to give locally, nationally, internationally. Well, today we're going to look in a little different direction. Because while Christmas is, for many people, a wonderful, joyful, exciting time of the year, for many people it is also a difficult, tragic, hurting time of year. And there are a lot of people that Christmas is not just fun all the time or exciting all the time, but that it brings up real emotion and hurt and pain. The holidays are some of the most painful times for a lot of people. And so today we're going to talk about, well, what do you do in the midst of all of that? How do you live through Christmas if difficulty is coming your way? And I was thinking this direction this week uh, when I came across a blog post by a guy named John Acuff. And John Acuff is a uh, a guy that has now just moved to Nashville, actually, to work with Dave Ramsey. But he wrote a blog. He started a blog several months ago now, I guess two or three years ago now, called Stuff Christians Like. And he writes daily about just funny stuff. But on Wednesdays, he has what he calls Serious Wednesdays. And so he takes a Wednesday and he writes a blog post that's serious. And this week's blog post caught my attention. This is what he wrote. He said, I remember I was in the Chicago airport and I was crying. And they weren't tough guy, lumberjack, I just punched a mountain lion in the face with my bare fist kind of crying. It was sad tired, give up tears. I was flying home from a conference in Chicago. I'd been the closing speaker and it had gone really well. That's not what I was crying about. I was crying because of what I knew would happen when I landed. A plane would land. I would take a train to my car, grab my work clothes, change it in a handicap stall, and disappear into a sea of cubicles. I didn't hate my job. It just wasn't what I felt called to do. It was the doldrums period where I was just writing and writing, but nothing was happening. I would sit at meetings about reports and budgets and get frustrated with God, wondering if He even saw me. I mean, wasn't He the one that put this burning in my heart? Wasn't it His call that I was answering? That wasn't how life was supposed to go. Has there ever been a situation where you had an expectation if you felt like God simply wasn't meeting? Someone is reading this blog morning about a marriage that has fallen apart. Wanted to be the first in your family to have a grandkid for your parents, not the first to get a divorce. Someone is in a gray cubicle and the degree they got, the passion they followed in college is a million miles away from how they spend 40 hours every week. There's someone struggling with an issue that refuses to release its talents, even though you're occasionally able to shake it for a few good weeks. So right now, someone is sending out wedding cancellation notice because... It's off. Right now there's a man who feels a lot less like a man because he doesn't have a job and can't provide for his family. Right now, there are a million different versions of, do you even see me, God? 
So we doubt and we get angry and we get lonely. But they aren't the only ones with expectations that go astray. I read that and it broke my heart. Because not necessarily he hasn't moved through it, but we all know people and we've all been in places like that. I read it this week in a... Um, I, I have school starting tomorrow. I have to be in Louisville. It's a beautiful day to drive to Louisville outside. Uh, I'm driving to Louisville this afternoon. I start class tomorrow. I have my last Ph.D. seminar this week. And so on Thursday, I have no more classes for the history of eternity. All right? Uh, I'm done with classes. I still have this the little thing called the comprehensive final exams and the dissertation. But other than that, I'm I'm done. Um, but... I'm writing my paper. Notice the keyword there is writing. I am in the midst of writing the paper, due in the morning, for this class. And I'm writing on what happens when a child passes away. And so I'm reading those stories. And I'm hearing stories from church members, of family members that have lost, even this week, a child. Of a high school, I mean, a college acquaintance who lost a child this week. And then when you read this blog post by John Acuff, what really starts to kind of get your mind thinking is when you read the comments that are underneath it. You know, where people give their own issues. Here's a few. None of the godly dreams I yearn for ever happen. And I'm beginning to think they never will. I'm starting to think God has decided I should be a failure for life. I'm utterly heartbroken. Another one wrote this, John, I don't know what to say, man. I had my tears at the airport moment last night. I was heading home after 15 hours of work. I'm tough because I have to be, but it's taken its toll on me, and I just broke down. I've been asking God, where are you? I'm tired of working so much. I do because the job I love doesn't pay enough. So I work 15 hours a day at two different jobs. If I could just get a promotion at the one job, I wouldn't have to work on both. But it seems that I'm stuck. I don't see friends any longer. I don't do anything socially. I work, 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 and work some more. I know that God's blessed me, but at the same time I'm wondering, where is he in all of this? Somebody else wrote. Right now I'm reading this blog in mourning at the loss of a baby that would have been born this week. And realizing the possibility of never being able to have children again. And one more. I'm sitting here in the cafeteria at work and I'm crying and it applies to me this very day. It's hard to hear. The journey has become scary. But I'll be okay. Thanks for writing. It hit me hard. Look at the book of Malachi. Because the truth is, we all know people, or we could come up with our own instances of those dreams and unfulfilled promises, or um, not promises from God, they're promises we made to ourselves, or other people have made, or, or expectations we have that aren't necessarily God's expectations. And the book of Malachi, I want you to read the last, with me, the last two verses of the entire book. So it's Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And it simply says this, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of their father to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And then it's done. Right? Well, the good thing is there's another Old Testament book coming up next, right? No. This is the end of the Old Testament. 
This is the last thing that will be written, the last prophecy that will be given for 400 years. Now, I am a guy that likes a good cliffhanger. You know what I'm talking about, a television series that's going on a hiatus for the summer, and they leave you in May with this ultimate cliffhanger, what's going to happen? Um, I love movies that let you think. How many of you have seen the movie Inception? Anybody? Okay, there are a few of us that will understand this, all right? I love Inception because it is the ultimate cliffhanger. Now, some of you in here are mad as everything at Inception because it's the ultimate cliffhanger. If you haven't seen Inception, go watch it, all right? That's all I can say. It's a great ending, and it's a great ending. I'm giving away a little bit of it, partially because it's a great cliffhanger. Well, Malachi is like the ultimate cliffhanger. Because he leaves it at this place where he says, I'm going to send Elijah, and the people will turn back to me, or they won't. And if they do, it's good. If they don't, I'm going to destroy them. The end. And then they go 400 years before anything's written. 400 years is a long time. You might know what year it was 400 years ago. That's not a trick question, all right? 1610, right? Almost 1611. 1610. Has anything changed in the world since 1610? So what, what changes have happened since 1610? Tell me. Cars? That, that, yeah. That's in the 100 years, right, about? Our independence? Here's the reality. Us. Thanksgiving. Had Thanksgiving happened 1610? The first one? No? So there weren't any settlers here from Europe, right? So that, that's kind of a big deal. America wasn't here yet in the current form. I mean, it was here. The land was here. But as a nation, we weren't here. So a lot can happen in 400 years, right? So you have this time span of 400 years. There's one scholar out there who says that the Israelites really felt like that because of what they had done in idolatry and God had sent them into exile, that when they came back to the land, they lived in a state of continuing exile for these 400 years because they felt God was still punishing them for their idolatry. So he didn't speak. He didn't talk. There were no prophets. And for 400 years, people wait. Expecting good things to happen, expecting God to show up, expecting the Messiah to come. And for 400 years, nothing but silence. Now, we don't like silence, do we? No, we don't. That's right, we don't. I mean, if I were to ask that question and just not just say we don't like silence and then wait for a response, somebody other than Jagger, right? Somebody other than Jagger would chime in in a few moments just to break the silence. You ever been in a small group or Sunday school or, or somewhere and the teacher asks a question and you don't know if it's rhetorical or if they're really wanting an answer and so everybody just sits there and you just wait and the teacher gives you that look like I'm going to wait till somebody gives me an answer and so finally just somebody decides to break the awkwardness I'm going to talk. Anybody, you know what I'm talking about there? I mean, there's silence we don't like. We especially don't like silence. We fill our lives with stuff to break the silence. Um, I mentioned writing a paper. When I'm writing a paper, I have all my stuff laid out, and I usually have 
two or three media things on so that it's not too quiet while I'm working. Now, for some people, that would drive you absolutely nuts, all right? It doesn't doesn't bother me because I detest silence. Well, God was silent for 400 years. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1. Now, let me say this very plainly. Just because he was silent doesn't mean he was inactive. He was still working to bring everything together. In that 400 years, a nation called Greece really developed. There was a leader named Alexander the Great that helped spread the Greek language all over the world. At the same time, right after that, Rome kind of comes up. And as Rome is there and taking captivity, they build roads all over the world that make transportation and word to get out so easily. In fact, Galatians tells us that God wasn't, was, even in his silence, wasn't uh, inactive. It says that he waited to the exact right moment, and then he sent Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, verse 5, we have when God begins to speak again. And it comes to this man named Zechariah and to his wife Elizabeth. It says in the, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. So let me ask you a question. Were these good people? These were good people. These were solid people. These were godly people. Verse 7 is the verse of disappointment. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both well along in years. Now, well along in years is the politically correct way to say what? Old, right? I'm saying the Bible's politically correct, but that's the way you say old. And we'll see in a minute, Zachariah is very... Uh, talented in use of language when describing his age and his wife's age. But they were old, and they didn't have any kids. And in that day and time, the biggest disappointment a family could have was to have no children. And for Elizabeth and Zechariah, day after day, month after month, year after year, they waited and longed for a child. And day after day, month after month, year after year, no child came. And the main point of saying that they were both well along in years is however old they were, they were past the age when people had kids. So their time had passed. For Zachariah and Elizabeth, Their whole life would have revolved around his job as a priest and then hopefully raising a family. And it just never happened. Let me tell you something. I I know people, and and I've shared this with you all, it's not a a secret that I'm sharing, but um, I I know people from the outside look at our family now and they see our three kids and Eli and Luke and Maddie. And, you know, we are just blessed beyond reason to have those children. We're excited about that. But what they don't realize is that we know what it feels like to sit in a doctor's office and the doctors say, zero percent chance of kids. We know what it's like for a doctor to look at us and say, you will never have children on your own. And so when I read verse 7, my mind transports back to that moment 
of disappointment and distress in my own life. To hear people talk. Because in that day and time, if you didn't have kids, there was only one explanation for it. You did something wrong. You sinned. You had problems. You were disobeying God. And so the rumors around town wouldn't have been, boy, Zachary and Elizabeth, they sure do live like they're doing right. But you know there's something not right there. Down at the local synagogue, they would have talked about it around the town square. And the whole time they know that it's happening. And they're just perpetually disappointed. Verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time had come of the burning of incense, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then the angel of the Lord, this angel Gabriel, he's kind of got a busy plate coming up in the days ahead. He's got to appear to Mary. He's got to go take care of some things. But the first stop he makes is Zechariah. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled, was gripped with fear. The angel said, don't be afraid. Your prayer's been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You are going to name him John. He will be a joy and a delight for you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or fermented drink, nor will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will be filled from the Holy Spirit from birth. Many of the people, now listen to these verses will be bring back to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Does that sound familiar to you? Sounds just like the end of Malachi. So here we have God for 400 years takes a break. And when he comes back and begins to speak again to his people, he starts in the exact same spot. Elijah, or the one like him, will come. Now, we know John the Baptist comes, and he's a little bit crazy, right? Doesn't cut his hair, eats the locust, wears the crazy stuff. In fact, he resembles Elijah a lot. But Zechariah knew that from the very beginning. Now, when that happens, Zechariah asks a question that we all would probably ask. How in the world is that going to happen? Right? Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? Now, notice what he says. This is for you guys that don't yet have a wife, aren't married yet. Here's a little marital advice, okay? He says, I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Here's what he basically says. I am very old, but my wife has aged very well, all right? He doesn't call her old, does he, guys? No, he doesn't call her old. He just says she's well along in years. And so he says, how can this be? I'm old. My wife, well, she's not young anymore. And the angel just says, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. You will be silent, not be able to speak until the day happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. And here's what he says. Basically, it's kind of like in Job, when Job just keeps questioning God, questioning God, questioning God. How's it going to be? How's it going to be? I don't understand this, God. Why is this happening? And God says, sit down, Job. Let me ask you some questions. Were you there when I created the sun and the moon and told the oceans where to stop? Until you were, don't question me. Gabriel basically says, I stand 
right next to God. It is not your decision to figure out how. It's just your decision to trust. What I'm going to tell you today is when you find yourself in that place where you don't have a clue what you're supposed to be doing, all you need to do is simply trust the Lord. Simply trust. The Bible says in Luke 1.24, After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and for five months she remained in seclusion. Now think about this for a minute. For five months she remains in seclusion, and he can't talk. It's an interesting time in their house. He comes, uh, the baby is born in Luke. You can turn over to Luke chapter 1, verse 67. We're going to look at that in just a moment. In chapter 1, verse 57, the baby is born. She gives birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives hear about it. They show great mercy. They share her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. They were going to name him Zechariah after his dad. We have a new Zechariah. No, he's not Zechariah, his mother said. He's to be called John. They said, there's no one named John. So who? How, why do we know this? And so immediately uh, they give Zechariah a tablet and he wrote, his name is John. He immediately can speak. He can praise the Lord. The neighbors are filled with awe. And throughout the hill country, people are talking about it. Everyone who heard about it still asking, what then is this child going to be? Now here's what happens. Once they get there and once they have this moment of the child being born, Zechariah decides the only appropriate way to celebrate is to sing, right? Do you notice there's a lot of singing in the Christmas story in the Bible, right? Mary, what does she do after she finds out the news? She, she sings. What happens? The angels show up, right? Angels show up, and what do they do? They sing, and after Jesus is taken to the temple, Simeon, they sing. It's almost like a musical is breaking out around the Christmas story, all right? And so Zechariah gets there, and he starts to sing. But what you see here is those months of silence of him, those months where he spent in silence, unable to talk, he contemplated the bigger things of God. He contemplated the higher things of God. He contemplated the bigger plan of God. And when he comes to verse 67, it says that the Holy Spirit fills him, and he prophesies with this song saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. He has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Salvation from our enemies, from all of who hate us. To show mercy. He remembers the oath he swore to Abraham to rescue us, to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness. And then he looks at his own son and he says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord, prepare the way for him, give his people the knowledge of salvation. You get this sense that Zechariah has spent years and years waiting for the moment when God would show up and deliver him like he could not believe. And in that moment, he burst forth with all that is within him, and he explodes with the praise to our Savior. Can you imagine getting the best news that you have ever received and you can't tell anybody for months? Can you imagine that? The best news. Those of you that have experienced that place where you've come, you, you found out that you're going to have a child. Can you imagine being told you're going to have a baby and not being able to tell anybody for months? And what you have here in Zechariah is not only is he having a child, a long 
awaited for gift of God. You might know that's what John means, gift of God. Long awaited for gift of God. But his child is going to be the forerunner of the king. And in that moment, Zechariah just explodes in praise. In there, he tells us that this Jesus that is coming would purchase us from slavery, that he would deliver us from danger, that he would be forgiver of our debts, that there would be a dawn of a new day, and that salvation was on its way. At the end of the blog I mentioned earlier, John Acuff writes that when we find ourselves in those moments of silence, we need to remember that what God is saying to us is something like this. I know my son, I, I know my daughter, I know. I know that thing that you wanted is not going to happen, not the way you've always dreamed. I, I know it hurts, I know it stings, I know you feel like I'm distant or not aware of where you are or who hurt you or what you think life was supposed to be like. I know in moments like this you doubt that I can count the hairs on your head or have your best in mind, but please, I am not done. I have barely started to reveal your life to you. I am the God who satisfies your desires with good things. That is me. And when it comes to your hopes and your dreams and your fears, I know, my child, I know. After we sang your name last week, I asked Jeff to use it today because what that song says is exactly what Zechariah experienced. That In the name of Jesus, there is hope for the hopeless. There is healing for the broken. And that His grace makes us whole again. He carries us when we're weary. He rescues us when we're hurting. He makes us whole again. I don't know where you are today. I don't know what's going on. But if there are silent moments in your life right now, Can I ask you this Christmas to simply trust and to know that God knows and that even though you may not see His hand moving, you can trust that He is working to deliver you.